0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance podcast on money, investing, the economy, and why they matter. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 20. It's titled How to Allocate Your Assets. The suggestion for this topic came from listeners Burke and Paul. And they wanted to learn a little more about asset allocation. And I, I was a little hesitant to pursue this topic because I am very much a asset allocation heretic. I, I don't I'm a non-believer. I don't believe in the traditional way of determining your optimal asset mix. And the traditional way falls under the umbrella of what is known as modern portfolio theory and and i and i used and i used to allocate assets for clients for institutions endowments and foundations for financial planners and even some individuals high net worth individuals for years and because this was the standard model modern portfolio theory is what i learned as an undergraduate in college it's what i studied as an mba it's what i studied as part of the cfa program which i never completed But it is the bedrock of modern finance. And if you go out and hire a financial planner to construct a portfolio for you and do some financial planning, more than likely they will use some version of modern portfolio theory. The reason why I don't believe in it or use it anymore is because it is a flawed... Map. It's a flawed methodology, and, but I'll teach you how it works, and then I'll teach you what the flaws are, and then I'll show you what I do instead. There's an interesting question that Nassim Nicholas Taleb asked. He's got a draft of a new book coming out, and I'll put a link to the show notes in to at least, it's a Google Doc, the draft of this, of this book. I read it this past weekend. and Well, I skipped the hard parts. There's a lot of math in this book, and, and I, I was reading for content, not for advanced mathematics, so it was a, somewhat of a fast read. But he raises the question, if you if there was a pilot in New York, you're flying out of LaGuardia Airport, would you prefer your pilot to be one, looking at a map of the Atlanta flying space or not using a map at all. Is it better to use an inaccurate map, a flawed map, or is it better to use no map? And, and that's where it comes in, in terms of asset allocation because modern portfolio theory is a map, but it's an inaccurate map. And yet it is very, very commonly used Is it better to take that approach or to do as I do and not use a map at all? And and you'll be able to decide for yourself. But let me introduce where modern portfolio theory came from. It was developed by Harry Markowitz, and for his doctoral thesis in 1952, he introduced the topic. The theory was developed throughout the early 50s through the early 70s, and it remains the bedrock of modern finance Markowitz won the Nobel Prize for his efforts. And the idea behind modern portfolio theory is that mathematically you can take an expected return in terms of percentage for any number of asset types, say domestic stocks, international stocks, bonds, real estate, non-investment grade bonds, private equity, anything, precious metals, if you can come up with an expected return and an expected volatility or variability, and then if you can determine how each of those asset classes or asset types move in relation to each other, you can throw it all into a model and it'll optimize and give you the split. What percent in stocks or domestic stock, what percent in international stocks, what percent in bond, any asset type in there, the math works together to create this optimal mix. And what it spits out at the end is your portfolio expected return will be, let's say, 7%, and the expected volatility of your return could be, let's say, 15%. And volatility variability is measured within modern portfolio theory with standard deviation which is, is standard deviation all that measures is what is the variability around the the average or the expected return and as I discussed a few episodes ago the what you can do with standard deviation it's kind of it's really kind of cool because you can add standard deviation you can say all right my expected return is seven percent two-thirds of the time my return using modern portfolio theory should fall between the 7% expected return plus one standard deviation, so 22%, or between 7% minus one standard deviation, so 7% minus 15%, which I I guess would be negative 8%. Two-thirds of the time, that's where in a given year, your return should fall. 95% of the time, it should fall between plus or minus two standard deviations, and 98% of the time between three standard deviations. That's the theory. And it's kind of a cool theory in the sense that it's simple and I found clients could understand it. And and so that's all you really need is you need an expected return for each asset type. You need an expected variability or volatility as measured by standard deviation. And you need how these assets move in relation to each other. And that relationship is called correlation. And so if two asset types move exactly in tandem. So if one goes up 10%, the other goes up 10%, one goes down 10%, the other goes down 10%, they would be perfectly correlated. So they would have a correlation of one. Most asset types are positively correlated. In other words, if one's going up, they're all going up. They just might not go up as much, and it might not be an exact match. So very few acid classes are positively correlated. But many could be 70 percent correlated so 0.6 or 0.7 but that that's what you need and then there's another element to modern portfolio theory is for each expected risk there is an optimal portfolio and the output is the highest expected return because that's really what you're trying to do you're trying to for a given level of return minimize the risk or for a given level of risk or expected volatility Maximize the return, and you can actually plot out a line graph of those returns, expected returns, and expected volatility combinations, and that line graph is called an efficient frontier. Perhaps you've heard of that. And if your chosen portfolio actually lies like a dot on that line graph, then your portfolio would be considered Efficient. And that's all it is. Now, with any theory, there are assumptions. And, and it's these assumptions that I find difficult to believe because it's not like the real world works. And, and so the next question would be, well, but if it's all we have. If it's all we have, we recognize that the assumptions are perfect, but is it good enough to get the answer that we want? Now, one question is, what, what, what answer do we want? At the end of the day, you don't need modern portfolio theory to realize you should diversify your assets. You should not put all your eggs in one basket. In fact, Shakespeare taught us that. In his play Merchant of Venice, the character Antonio is quite sad, and he can't figure out why. And one of his friends suggests, well, maybe you're worried about your ventures at sea. And if you've been to Venice, it's very much, this, it's a seaport with canals. And, and that in the early years, that is how many people made money. They would, they would invest in terms of their ventures out sea, and, and there was risk there. But here's what Antonio says. He says, my ventures are not in one bottom trusted, nor to one place, nor is my whole state upon the fortune of this present year. Antonio was diversified. We don't need modern portfolio theory to to know that. The the risk of modern portfolio theory is is we believe that by using this so-called sophisticated model, we have the right answer. And and I used to believe that. And let let me show you how we used to do asset allocation studies at my old firm they don't they don't necessarily do it this way anymore but in the mid-1990s i joined this firm and we would do these we would do these asset allocation studies for clients but it was completely backward looking we we had this software program where you would choose the asset types but then you'd have to choose the time frame that you wanted to to use within the model now there's a time frame so that it could calculate an expected return. It could calculate the expected volatility. It could calculate the correlation, and then it would it would plot out this this efficient frontier, and it would give you the options. Well, think about that. What's the problem in looking backward? Well, the problem is what we care about is what's going to happen in the future, and 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 depending on the time period, I would choose. I would get very, very different answers. And so I found myself running all these different backward-looking time frames so I could come up with one that matched what I thought was the most probable scenario of what was going to happen in the future. That was crazy. And so we eventually came up with an idea. All right, why don't we come up with our own future forward-looking assumptions? And we we focused on a 10-year time frame and then we came up with forward looking assumptions and we built a different model that that worked better but then as i continued to work with clients i realized that well most of them really don't want an optimal portfolio depending on you know with our new if our new assumptions in there depending on well Here's what you can do with an asset allocation model. You can actually you can run it completely unconstrained. In other words, you just put in the assumptions for return, for risk, for correlation, and, and it'll spit out the efficient frontier, this line graph showing the optimal portfolio for each level of risk, what maximizes the return. You got this pretty line graph. The problem is when you look at the portfolios on the line graphs. They might not be a portfolio a client would be willing to invest in. They might like the expected return, let's say 8%, and they might like the fact that the standard deviation is minimized, let's say 12 to 15%. But then when you look at what's in the portfolio, it might be 60% hedge funds, it could be 70% small cap stocks, or some... Level of portfolio mix that the client just doesn't just doesn't feel comfortable with and And so what I found myself doing is actually putting constraints on the curve So I would say all right. I want an optimal portfolio But I don't want more than 15% in hedge funds or 15% in small company stocks and so then it would create a different different line graphs with, with these constraints and then I would choose a portfolio that was on the line. Now, sometimes, even then, the portfolio the client wanted wasn't, wasn't quite right. It was close, and, and, and there were times, because I'd have to show these graphs to the clients, I'd actually make the dot for the chosen portfolio bigger so it would actually touch the efficient frontier. That That's sort of some of the, the tricks of the trade. But... The the challenge then is it was a constrained frontier. It wasn't optimal. It was very much like creating an optimal diet for clients consisting of food groups that they were willing to eat, what they're willing to eat, not necessarily what was healthiest for them. And, and that's when I, I started. It just seems like such a constrained, convoluted process to get – to an answer, which was ultimately to have a diversified portfolio with multiple asset mix, hopefully some idea of the expected return. But then I started reading even more about some of the challenges and, and looking in at what, what are some of the assumptions that underlying modern portfolio theory. And there was a book that came out in 2007, by Nassim Nicholas Taleb, who I've mentioned in an earlier podcast. It's called The Black Swan. And and he was very, very critical of modern portfolio theory, and particularly some of the assumptions and how the output didn't match reality. That really got me thinking. And then The Nail in the Coffin was a a book by Benoit Mandelbrot, who is the father of, of fractals, fractal geometry. He wrote a book, I believe it came out in 2010, called The Misbehaviors of Markets. And he was even more specific of what is wrong with modern portfolio theory and how it doesn't really follow what goes on with markets. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. And right now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H M-O-N-E-Y.com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. So what are the assumptions that make modern portfolio theory an inaccurate map? Well, one, and I won't cover them all, I'll just cover the major differences I have. One It assumes that all investors are alike and that they are rational agents. Well, investors aren't are are not alike. They they have different goals, they have different psyches, they have different levels of fear and greed, and clearly when you look at bubbles that occur, investors can be very, very irrational. So that's one. But that I mean if that was just it and the models still seem to work, it wouldn't be that big a deal. The biggest issue is modern portfolio theory and how most people allocate assets. It assumes that most returns congregate around the average, and extremely rare, either good or bad returns, they just don't happen very often. You go back to that whole standard deviation, 98% of the time the return will fall within Plus or minus three standard deviation. You just don't get really, really bad returns or really, really good returns very often. That's the theory. The reality is, if if you go to moneyfortherestofus.net, dot net, go to the show notes for episode twenty. There is a graph there that comes from Benoit Mandelbrot's book, *The Misbehavior of Markets*, and he and it it shows the the. Dow Jones Industrial Average, which is a measure of U.S. large company stocks, and it shows the way returns, it measures it in terms of standard deviations. In other words, how, how many standard deviations was a return in a given year? How, how far did it differ from the average return? So that's the top graph. The bottom graph shows what's known as Brownian motion, which is how particles move within a liquid. And Brownian motion has shown to be what's called normally distributed. In other words, most of the observations around the expected mean or the average to two-thirds, actually 68% of the time it falls within plus or minus one standard deviation, 95% of the time within two standard deviations, 98% of the time within three standard deviations. That's how that bottom graph is how markets should actually look. The top graph shows how markets actually perform. And if you look at that top graph, what you'll notice is there's clumping. In other words, volatile years, three, four, five standard deviation type events tend to be lumped together. And there's also huge outliers. 1987 was a 20 standard deviation event. That's when the, there was a huge, that was Black Monday. The odds of having a 20 standard deviation event, a return so low, so far off the average, is like 1 in 10 to the 50th. It's a number so long with so many zeros, it's it's incomprehensible. And yet we've had a number of those huge events. And modern portfolio theory assumes returns in one year are independent from another year. In other words, there should not be clumping. There should not be a series of returns that clump together. You look at that top graph, volatility tends to be in, in clumps. It's very much like when you're flying on an airplane and you hit a pocket of turbulence. One pocket of turbulence tends to be followed by another pocket of turbulence, and then you eventually get smooth air. That's how markets work. Volatility comes in, in clumps, and extreme events tend to happen together. Now, not necessarily all down. It could be down a dramatic amount and then up a dramatic amount. That's not supposed to be that way in terms of modern portfolio theory. Why is that an issue? Well, because the bottom chart is what it's supposed to look like. Random, completely random. The top chart is what it actually is. It's not random. It clumps together And because the extreme events occur way more often than they should, it means investors are exposed to much more risk than than they they realize that they are. Nicholas Nassim Taleb or Nassim Nicholas Taleb says, "Risk management is less about understanding random events as what they can do to us. Risk is in the in the tails. It's in the extreme outcomes, not in the variations." Modern portfolio theory focuses on, well, the variability. What we should carry about, care about is these extreme outcomes, the unknown, the... Well, what well, Mandelbrot says, what matters is the particular, not the average. Asset allocation studies that are based on modern portfolio theory tend to focus on the average outcome, the average expected return we should be allocating assets based on exposure to extreme events and the risk of that here's an example the other day i was updating the operating system on my daughter's laptop it was a mac and and i went and i was going to go do it and and i just i started well, i downloaded maverick OSX, osx maverick and i realized david what are you doing you haven't backed up the computer Now, if I was following modern portfolio theory, I would say that's okay because the average outcome is that everything will be fine and and it'll install without a hitch. But I don't care about the average outcome. I care about losing her pictures when we travel to, to France together and all her other pictures. So we're backing it up. The extreme outcome is we're backing it up. We make that decision all the time in our financial life. On average... We won't be robbed, our house, and our house won't burn down. That's the average expectation. Yet we still protect against the extreme event by getting homeowner's insurance. On average, we won't die in our prime. Yet, if you have a family, often have life insurance or disability insurance to protect against these extreme events. Why don't we do that in terms of how we allocate assets? Why aren't we focusing on the extreme on extreme events that clump together that 's how I allocate assets, and perhaps that 's how you should also now for many people it 't matter because their account balances are small, they have many, many years of employment in front of them, and so if they, they allocate in the traditional way using model portfolio theory they 'll be diversified they 'll be fine, and because if an extreme event occurs, they won 't be irreparably harmed. It will not be catastrophic. But for somebody like myself that is retired in in my late 40s, I have 30 to 40 years to live. I have one nest egg. I need to be focusing on the unknown, my exposure to these unknown extreme events, knowing that they can be much more severe than anyone can anticipate. During that October of 1987 stock market crash, two-week period, the latter two weeks of October, U.S. stocks fell 23%. It fell over 40% in Australia and Hong Kong, nearly 60% decline in two weeks in New Zealand. During the flash crash of May 2010, U.S. stocks, as measured by the Dow Jones Industrial Average, fell almost 9% in a matter of minutes. Markets can fall 40% in weeks, if not days. Now you could say, well, they came back. They always come back. There's no guarantee that they will always come back. What if it took decades to overcome 80 40% decline? And so as a result, focusing and recognizing the extreme occurs much more than it should, according to modern portfolio theory. Just look at the graph from the show notes. And you'll be able to see that 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 is not a random walk when you look at that top graph. So how do I allocate assets then? Next episode, I'm going to show you my allocation over time going back to 2008. And I'll explain my decision and what I do. And, And I'm hesitant to do it because I don't want you to take it as a recommendation. But Darren, as one of our listeners, pointed out that having real live examples really helps them conceptualize the topic. And I want to show you that it's not necessarily easy to allocate focusing on extreme events and exposure, that my allocation hops all over the place. I invest much more like a hedge fund worried about capital loss and obviously achieving the expected return. That's what we'll cover next week because I think it would be very helpful for you to have an example. If you want that graph emailed to you instead of having to go to the show notes, go ahead and get on moneyfortherestofus.net. You can sign up for my insider's guide. That's where I'll send you the show notes each week. That's where I'm answering general readers' questions that I won't necessarily cover in the podcast and so I answer those each week. You can get those. That's moneyfortherestofus.net. If you have questions, you can email me at jd at jdavidstein.com. And I wanted to read a quick review for you. This is from Me Ogre, M-I-O-G-R-E. She titled her review. Very well done. Interesting. Useful insight, the true cost of a thing, which was episode five, was a total aha for me. Keep it coming. Thanks for that review. I would encourage you all, if you haven't, please go ahead on iTunes or on Stitcher and leave a review. It's very helpful to help others discover the podcast. Just a reminder everything I've shared with you in this podcast is for general education only. I have not considered your specific risk profile. I have not provided investment advice at all and particularly next week when i show you my allocation weights over time and why i made them that is not investment advice that is just illustrations so you can learn more about money investing the economy and why they matter next up next week episode 21 thanks